Hey guys, what's up? This is episode 8 of The Secret Top 10, and I have a very special guest this time. It's Joe Rubin from Vinegar Syndrome. He's been on the show before. Uh, Joe runs, uh, is one of the people behind Vinegar Syndrome. He runs Vinegar Syndrome. He helps uh, get the titles, picks the titles, saves films, does all sorts of stuff. Um, the guy's an encyclopedia of film knowledge, and uh, he brought a pretty cool list. Um, he goes in-depth on one movie, which I loved. Um, yeah, a lot of interesting ideas about it, and he loves the film uh, very much, so it, it shows definitely. Anyways, I was super glad to have him on. Um, and also, you guys notice I ditched the whole angle on the side, because if you guys notice Zoom, I'm learning with the doing the Zoom report, uh, like recordings and stuff. The, the audio gets out of sync, and it, it's not necessarily recording at different frame rates, it's literally zoom is not keeping up and there'll be lags and stuff. So it's just, it doesn't really make any sense to like constantly have to try to sync the videos at whatever point it went out of sync. So it's just kind of aggravating. So I decided just to go with the, basically the widescreen. It's easier on editing and stuff and, and uh, syncing up stuff. So hopefully that's all right. Anyways, please enjoy this episode. Uh, the tournament is bonkers. Uh, yeah, enjoy it. Uh, yeah, it is episode eight of the secret top 10 with vinegar syndromes, Joe Rubin. Well, I'm here with, uh, Joe Rubin from vinegar syndrome. He's one of the, uh, people that runs the company, gets movies to release, uh, you know, saves movies from rotting away. And, uh, yeah, he's going to do a secret top 10. He doesn't even really know the rules. I'm going to have to explain him. That's true. You did, I think you sort of did explain it, but I forgot. <laughs> um, all right. The secret top 10 is essentially um, basically taking work off me. Like, so um, you give me a subject and you pick you pick 10 movies. You have your top 10 of a certain subject. I have two minutes to guess after you tell me the subject or any like caveats or anything like that. Um, you time me or I time myself for two minutes. Write down as many as I can. We go over your complete list. You talk about the movies as much as you can. I can talk a little bit if I've seen them afterwards, and then I'll go over my top ten and see how poorly I did and whatnot. Okay, so that's about what I remembered. It's basically the match game, but with lower stakes. Yeah, I mean, there's no way. I'm probably I'm. I'll be lucky to get one. I have not gotten zero on any, but most of the time I get like one or three. Well, I think in both options that I'm going to give you, we like at least some of the same movies, so hopefully. Okay. Uh, All right, and I do know your taste a little bit, but you have a, a really wide variety of tastes, um, like, and this is one of the, like, five or six people that I talk to that usually has a bunch of movies I've never heard of that you bring up, and I, like, I'm just lost. I'm, I'm trying, I mean, I, I could go the, the hard route, but I'm trying to go the, uh, the easier route for the sake of... Uh, conversation or something yeah uh, like i don't if you do like french erotica or like i said 50s <laughs> musical or some shit like that it'll be nothing to, uh, i'm sticking to horror okay that that's a little bit better on me is this a better camera position i feel like i'm like not i feel, I feel like it is okay good. all right computer screen is basically just sticking up at this point all right so here are your choices uh American slashers from uh, post Halloween through 1989. American proto slashers 1970 through 1978. Or American regional films 1970 through 1989. What was the last one? Regional American films? American regional horror films. All Fuck. Those are all good, but the easiest one, I know that I'll at least get one. And that, what was the proto slasher years? 
uh, 70 through 78. Mm. See, the, all the, of our, no, no Euro stuff, no... Uh, now, you probably might include some Canadian stuff in that, Proto Slashers, maybe? Uh, only in the context of if it was financed and or produced entirely by Americans. I don't want to, I'm not going to include anything that was a Canadian production through and through. Oh, fuck, that's hard. I could easily come up with 10 American slashers, but most likely 10 American slashers is not going to make the fucking list. What was the years? Uh, regular slashers would be 79 to 89. Proto slashers would be 70 to 78. And the regional horror would be 70 through 89. I'm going to pick, not pick the regional horror, just because, again, when it comes to regional horror, all my list is just going to be Ohio movies because that's what's stuck in my head. Um, Slashers is going to be the easiest. No Ohio movies on the list. <laughs> what are you talking about? What's wrong with Ohio? Uh, I mean, the Wednesday Children is fine, I guess, but I wouldn't consider it one of the ten best. Okay, so let's, you know what? For me being cheap, I'm going to do the slashers, the American slashers from 79 to 89. Okay. Let me get my own list up. I'm going to hit the timer. Got two minutes to write. Uh, wait, I have two minutes to write? No, I have to, wait, I have to write, I have two minutes to write your top 10. Okay. All right. Let me know when, when, when you're ready. I have my, my list right. up here. You don't like the typical slashers, but you do sometimes. This is gonna. Do you want me to give you a general clue to like maybe hone it in a bit more? Maybe Although, if you want. Sure. Uh, so my definition of slasher is probably pretty different than what many people would consider the traditional definition of a slasher. Okay. So, but like, and this is not on the list, so it doesn't count if I tell you. I only uh, have a minute 15. I, I would consider something like Hell High or, I don't know, uh, Geek, uh, Backwoods, to be slashers, even though they're not really slashers, or even something like Butcher Bake the Nightmare Maker. Uh, so think about slashers as far as I like them to be more character-driven, mood-driven, tone-driven. Okay. Um, I'm vaguely doing, and I can't remember if you like any of the franchises at all. I generally like one or two for each one. Popped out at the end because all that I need is one. Let me see if I can take any of these off and switch one. I got. I, I got definitely know one. I think I do too, um, unless I completely went blank on it. Um, fuck. Oh. Done. Right. Okay. All right, so we're ready to hear your list. Okay, so should I do it in ranked order? 
You can do it whichever from the top or bottom because there's the odds of me getting one in the right spot are zero. Well, I'll do it in ranked order because I think that uh, that could make a more compelling way of talking about these movies. Yeah, 10 to, 10 to 1? Sure. Okay. Uh, so... Getting my own ranking down. All right, number ten, movie that uh, would probably be well. I guess a few of these might be seen as cheap, uh, but I think it speaks to my tastes. So this is a film that is kind of debatable as a slasher, although I would consider it a slasher because it was definitely made in a structure that would become more consistent with the slasher. But because it was made in 1979, it still has a lot of connections to 70s crime and action films, although it's sort of mixing that with the uh, then burgeoning slasher mentality. So number 10 would be don't answer the phone. Run if you must. Hello, operator. It's an emergency. Can you help me? Hide if you can. Scream <laughs> if you are able. Who's there? But above all, if you are alone. Don't answer the phone. I say that's a cheat because I released it, so... I love that movie. It doesn't disqualify. No. So, don't answer the phone. Uh, works as a slasher in that it uh, follows one of the handful of general tropes of the slasher where we're, we're following the killer. We're not following the cops entirely, although this is a very even handed, like, we're with the killer. Sometimes we're with the cops and the reporter or, or the radio announcer, other times. And it's what, what really stands out to me is. I love movies that capture places and places in a certain time. And Don't Answer the Phone does such a wonderful job of being a time capsule of LA in the summer of 1979. Uh, there's wonderful location footage. Uh, the mood, the tone is kind of jarring at times, but uh, Nicholas Worth is just so commanding on screen and he really dominates the film I and mean, it's a shame that he isn't in every single scene but it doesn't totally follow him but he makes so big of an impression that uh even just watching little segments of it are very pleasing yeah he, he's phenomenal in that movie he's actually like top five character actors for me even though he wasn't as prolific as he should have been he was pretty busy but he he was the best henchman you could ever get in a movie. Like when he showed up in the as a henchman in like Dark Man or even um, Hologram Man, he he steals every scene he's in because he's got such a unique look. And uh, the music score in Don't Answer the Phone, that real sleazy, that stuff's great. Definitely. So uh, number nine. Uh, this is again kind of an unexpected one. Uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. 
tonight on the CBS Saturday Night Movies, this gentleman saved this little girl's life, but they accused him of harming her. We'll do this ourselves. And he was tragically murdered. Now, one by one, the men of this town are dying. Who is his avenger? Is it the dead man's grief-stricken mother? They killed my boy! The little girl who loved him. I know what you did to brother. Or could it be the scarecrow? Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, coming up next. Which I haven't watched in years, so hopefully my memories of it uh, will hold up if I did rewatch it. But in my official slasher ranking, that's where it is. Uh, it's another film that deals with tropes that I really enjoy in horror films where the supernatural elements, and it is ostensibly a supernatural film, takes a backseat to the emotional components of the supernatural element. Like it's highly character driven and it does something that I, I really, really appreciate in the film that deals with supernatural stuff, which is constantly has the characters interacting with each other as with a sense of unease as to whether the supernatural elements are real or not rather than simply saying, oh yeah, they're real, it must be real, like supernatural things exist and therefore we just accept them. I, I always like the sense of doubt and skepticism. I think it's something that's often missing in supernatural films where like at the point uh, everyone kind of accepts like there's supernatural stuff going on. But one of the things that makes Dark Knight of the Scarecrow work so well is it really keeps that at as a, as a point of contention. like what's real, what's not real. And it also deals with the subjectivity of how each of the characters wants to interpret, the main characters wants to interpret how the events are unfolding, why the murders are happening. And it also is metaphorically into much more with number one, where the supernatural elements are in some ways a reflection of guilt. So... That would be number nine. That uh, that movie is one that uh, is on my shameful not watch list. It's been I've had that movie. I bought it two or three times, and I never watched it. I've only heard great things about it, and that's the second movie that you listed in a row with the actor from Darkman in it. Totally <laughs> unintentional. I don't know. I think there's Darkman actor in every single one of your movies now. All right, moving on to my number eight pick. Uh, this one is a film that gets a lot of shit and I think it's really a shame that it does, especially considering that it was made by a geriatric director. Uh, and I always, I also love that. I love when exploitation films and horror films are made by directors, especially when they're trying to deliberately play into then contemporary fads. So number eight is Night School. <laughs> for a lesson in terror. Night School. Oh. And it also qualifies as, I think, yeah, it's, it's the only one on this list. Well, I take that back. It's one of two on this list that works as 
uh, as much as a slasher as it does a giallo. And yeah. the giallo is my favorite type of film. If I were to cite the movie structure the, 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 that I, I most resonate with and have since I was a kid, it would absolutely be the giallo. Like, I, I love murder mysteries. I always have. I love the idea of mysteries engaging the viewer, making the viewer able to enjoy uh, not just what's literally happening on screen, but the idea of getting involved in trying to think about where the story is going to go beyond like how it's going to end. And, 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 I, and I love the tawdriness of Night's Christmas Beautiful. It, it's a sleazy, trashy giallo. It's also set in Boston, so that goes again to films that uh, record places and time. And it has a great looking killer, uh, the motorcycle outfit and all that. And it's just, it, it's fun. Like as, as far as early 80s slashers go, there was so, so many of them. And most of them just feel like the same movie over and over again. Night School feels different, probably because the guy who made it had made children's films before. <laughs> and yeah. he, uh, what, what was that director's name? For a minute, I thought you were going to say happy birthday to me because that was J. Lee Thompson, right? Yeah. He's a fucking director. That's cool. Yeah, I, I was mixing. I was. I thought you were going to say "Happy Birthday to Me," and uh, that motorcycle uh, killer thing was also uh, "What Have You Done to Our Daughters?" "Welcome to Spring Break." There's a couple of those. Ken Hughes. I was right on the Ken. Ken okay. Hughes, best remembered for "Shitty Shitty Bang Bang." Oh the, fuck! Give me a flying call. Uh, and here he was. Let's. I know how old he was. I know he was really old. And he got it on the video nasty list too. Yeah, uh, he actually, no, no, he wasn't as old as I thought he was. He was 59, still. Still old enough to not be directing, you know, something that the 20 to 25-year-old guys were directing. Sure, definitely. Uh, all right, where are we? Okay, number seven. Here's the other, well, one of the two other cheats, I guess. Uh, so number seven is Christmas Evil. This Christmas, Santa's going to make everyone happy. The grown-ups. And the kids. Christmas Evil. Uh, I don't think it's the best of the Christmas-themed horror films, but the better ones are not applicable to this list. Uh, but similar to Dark Knight of the Scarecrow and one that we'll be getting to later on in the list, it's really a character study. And I think one of the things that I've always loved about Christmas Evil since the first time I saw it is the very end, which if you haven't seen it is best not spoiled because it's a really kind of, and, and I, I don't, I don't have any interest in Christmas. I've not, I, I can't stand people who are like, Oh, it's Christmas. The whole world rolls around Christmas. I'm so happy that it's Christmas. Like fuck those people. Christmas is a stupid waste of time. It makes everything inconvenient. Too much stuff is closed. It just pisses me off about the money. Like, you're like, I saved up money. I was right, like, budgeted. Now I have to drop at least, like, $500,000 more. Well, I don't buy presents. So I'm, I'm, I, I save myself from that hassle. <laughs> uh, but Christmas Evil is truly a Christmas movie. 
the type of Christmas movie that I want Christmas movies to be, instead of it being about like how wonderful the Christmas season is, it's a study of loneliness. And that to me is Christmas. Christmas is bored, nothing to do, everything's closed. And for the people who are actually into Christmas, it's this like manic obsession. So you get the loneliness and the manic obsession element. And then an ending that is really sad, but also very poetic. It's a great ending. It's got to be one of the best endings in a movie like that. And it's just, it, it, you know what? Like there's so many movies where you just take a character and you study them. This, and I love those things. Like A Witch Who Came From the Sea came up. I, I recommended that to somebody who picked lead female like characters in horror films. And I was like, A Witch Who Came From the Sea might be one of the best ones for me. It is a great movie, and it's on my uh, if you've chosen the Proto Slashers. <laughs> I wouldn't have got it because for some reason my mind resets. I would have been like, Blood and Black Lace. Well, Blood and Black Lace is the show. No, I meant Blood Blood and Lace, the uh, oh. 71. Yeah. That one is not on there, but it, it, it would make a, probably a top 50. Okay. Top 50? How many Proto Slashers do you know? Uh, let me see how many I have on my master list. Master list? I have 79. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. Number six in the last of the cheats. And this is one that I don't think most people would classify as a slasher, but I feel that if you approach it as a slasher, it becomes all the more enjoyable. Angel. Angel. It's her choice. Her chance and her life by Robert Vincent O'Neill who just died I think yesterday oh that's uh, crazy uh, yeah and that was a film that I wanted to release for many 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 years and it was like very fortuitous that it actually worked out and I got to release it it's a, a long time favorite and much like Christmas Evil uh, it works so well because it's a character drama it's a character drama where the murders are more incidental to character building than the focus of the film. And I, and I really appreciate that. I have a friend who uh, I made an ill-fated movie with years ago. And the whole idea of this project was uh, I was obsessed with, and I got him obsessed with uh, what I refer to as the incidental slasher, where uh, the, the, the example of that most easily comes to mind <clears throat> is uh, Single Girls, which uh, if you haven't seen, I, what was I that one? Single Girls by uh, the Sebastians. No, that they uh, put out this fucking movie too. Uh, what was right? that? Rocktober Blood. Oh yeah, better <laughs> than Rocktober Blood. People like Rocktober Blood more, but Single Girls is way better. I mean, Rocktober Blood's not good. It's just got a great shirt and cover art. Yeah, good title. Uh, but the single girls is like it is the quintessential for me incidental slasher where it's like this uh singles getaway weekend where they're all gonna basically fuck each other and a lot of uh soap opera style drama ensues you know jealousies and all that and that's the focus of the film it's all these characters being kind of catty to each other and trying to like screw up each other's dates and have affairs with other you know people that and some other characters is, is trying to uh, hook up with and 
then every so often there's a murder and the murders are completely unnoticed. Like no one, you know, it's like, oh, this is so-and-so bad. Oh, it must be off somewhere. Okay, fine. Let's get back to our, you know, soap opera. So I, I love incidental slashers because there was such a, there was such a seventies phenomenon. Like when the eighties slasher craze happened, everything made during that period, or most everything made during that period, we would focus on like, Killings were the, the, the raison d'etre for the film and everything was like, let's figure out a way to move the plot along to get from one killing scene to the next. So Angel uh, is, uh, again, kind of a throwback film to the incidental slasher, where really it's a character drama about this band of misfits and how they all love and care for each other. Uh, and then every so often there's a sex killer who's going around and murdering over. And these two elements, like they, they don't exist in the same world of really beyond, uh, and when I said like they don't exist in the same world, like the sex killer is not part of the world that the rest of the cast are involved in. He's an outsider, he's not really a character, he just sort of shows up to murder someone every so often. Uh, and as a character piece, though, it's just so lovely and, uh, and sweet and sincere, and everyone in the cast is just incredible. Like Dick Sean, uh, Rory Calhoun, Susan Tyrell, they're just all, and of course, Don Phillips, uh, they're all like on top of their game, brilliant uh, character actors, and every single one of them makes such an impression. Oh, when you mentioned when you mentioned incidental slasher and you were ex uh, explaining single girls which I've never actually heard of my entire life I've never heard of the single girls movie I'm gonna have to look that up it reminded me exactly of deadly games that just got released on blu-ray where it's literally yeah. them just talking about like who they're gonna sleep with and then somebody gets killed <laughs> and that's like 20 minutes of that again yep and, and I like deadly games deadly oh. games so one, one of the other things that I was thinking of, but this is something that like would be basically impossible for anyone except for me to uh, come up with the top 10 of, but uh, horror films made by porn people. <clears throat> oh, fuck. Um, yeah. Reforms Cruel Girls, does that count? I don't know if I'd call it a horror film. I mean, Hell Night, I guess, counts. Same uh, director, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, Deadly Games is another one that qualifies in that realm. Uh, so, uh, all right, number five, and this is like the only big expected title that I would include in the list, and it is Halloween, the original. And yeah, I, I, I try to stay away from like big titles because I feel like smaller films, lower budget films, rarer films deserve more of a spotlight. But there's no denying that Halloween is a great film. Saw it for the first time in many years, maybe a year ago, and it's just such an impressive put together movie. The, the way that Carpenter builds suspense 
through camera movement, through editing, through blocking of actors, like things that are really basic, but they're all just brilliantly done. And you can see how much of a talent he was, is from looking at, you know, even like the first 20 minutes of Halloween. It's just, it, it's, I, I kind of like the beginning of Halloween more than when it's like Michael Myers stalking everyone at night. Uh, but the entire film is so riveting and compelling. It gives you so much to keep you, as cliche as, as this expression is, keep you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, I mean, it set the template, and, and I do agree. I think I do like the day stuff a lot better. I mean, because Halloween, it's a dark film, so I mean, and it was a, a cheaper film, so it, it does not as good looking, and, and the day stuff looks great, you know? Myers just stalking behind leaves and stuff, is, is and uh, they set up a good mythology of Michael Myers, and it doesn't seem forced, if that makes any sense. Yeah, he absolutely. Has a, he has a good mythology, and it's not overly forced either. I mean, the boogeyman stuff, it just comes together really well. Yeah, like movies like that, often annoy me when they just don't answer any questions but he pulls it off really effortlessly well yeah i mean that was his whole kind of you know thing to, to not answer that one question and then the sequels came along and they immediately ruined that <laughs> so number four uh this is i think a real wild card uh especially to be this high up in my ranking the unseen for too long, it has been locked away, breathing, eating, growing, watching, waiting. Hello? Barbara Bach stars as three women move unknowingly to unlock a living nightmare. The Unseen. That's one of the, like, I don't want to use it. I almost said mongoloid. I don't know if that's an appropriate term anymore. But there's a lot of those slashers with the mutant. Yeah, well, that kind of, I don't know. I don't know. He's just a big guy that lives in the house, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, you know, there's Humongous. Which humongous, is Just Before past. Dawn. Just Before Dawn, I like. Uh, I don't love it. Uh, it holds up better in a theatrical environment than on, on video. Uh, but The Unseen is very close, again, to Christmas Evil and Angel Form, where it's a character study. And it's about this middle-aged man and woman, and I don't want to give away too much because I think that the dynamics of those characters are really what make the film wonderful. So anyone watching this who hasn't uh, who hasn't seen the film should try to go into it without knowing as much because as it reveals its twists, and there really aren't a lot of twists, but it does have like a couple of big twists or big reveals, I guess, twists. Uh, it, it's best to not know what they are, even if you can guess them, because they're handled really well. And Again, we, we have incredible performances from uh, the actors who I'm forgetting the names of. Uh, Isn't Cindy Lassiter in it? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. Sydney, uh, Sydney Lessig, uh, who plays the man. It's been years since I've seen that movie. All I remember is Sydney Lessig in it from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Alligator. Yeah, yeah, he's in it. Uh, and Lilia Goldoni. Please. I'd have to see her. Please. Her, she doesn't have a lot of dialogue, and she conveys so much emotion with her eyes. Like it, it, it's a wonderful piece of subtle physical act, and it, it's it's kind of amazing that uh, Danny Steinman. I mean, I don't you know who knows the circumstances of what really happened on that set, but he took his name off of the film because apparently he didn't like the cut or he didn't like what the producers were doing or something. But I think that it's it's a it's such a well-directed movie. There's so much care and, and attention to detail put into, especially the performances, but also just the use of the giant mansion that they're shooting. Yeah. Like it, it, it feels, you know, what, there's so many single location horror movies, and especially slashers and slasher adjacent films, that it it, it, it takes something to make a single location film really feel tense, but also like conscious of the location. And, and this film does a really good job. Like I said, I, I have been so long since I seen the movie. I remember a lot of vent play in that movie, some vent play, if that makes sense. That's the one scene I do remember. Yes. That, that, that's, a, that's a recurring scene. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if vent play is a term ever used before. Oh, you might have invented a fetish. All right. Uh, that one uh, all right. Number three. Uh, Dress to kill. Brian De Palma, the master of the macabre, invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. to kill Michael Caine Angie Dickinson Nancy Allen dressed to kill murder made to order by Brian De Palma okay um you mentioned doing a proto slasher list um not a proto American Gialli list yes and dressed to kill was on my list I was thinking about I was like well it's got to be a bunch of De Palma on there I had like two De Palma three De Palmas now, I, I personally prefer, as far as De Palma Hitchcock tributes go, uh, Body Double. But Body Double doesn't quite work as a slasher. It definitely has slasher elements, but it doesn't really go full on into slasher territory. And by 84, 85, slashers were so rigidly defined that it, it, it wouldn't work for me to put it as a slasher. Dress to Kill, however, is made right at the prime period, and it works with a great giallo, it works with a great slasher. Uh, you know, De Palma is in top form. It's, it's in his golden era where he was just turning out one masterpiece after another. So Dress to Kill is so much fun to watch. Like it, It's one of these movies that knows how absurd it is and, and, and 
De Palma always was kind of aware of that, but like it, it, it plays so over the top, but also dead serious that he's not trying to go into like winking at the audience camp, but he's also having a lot of fun with the material and the absurdity of the material and just having fun with the camera and editing and all of those there's so many great sequences in the film and then Pino Benaggio's score is one of I think the great American film scores of that period like, uh, you, you know the theme I'm sure um, I, I know Pino Donaggio. the theme doesn't come to mind when I say dress to kill dress to kill the first thing that comes to mind is the elevator scene with the reflection and the knife and the elevator all that whole scene when I saw that scene I literally said I don't I, I don't know how he shot that how he thought of that but that scene literally made me be like oh because like, every time somebody does something like that where you think it's safe and then you notice something the last second before you do it, it's it's something real scary. Like you almost ever really hurt yourself and then you stop like the right before you do it and you're like, oh my God, I almost died right there. It's exactly that scene in Dress to Kill. So yeah, Dress to Kill, like, I haven't seen it in five, six years, but like I remember the film so well and it's rare when I, I, I try to watch most movies only once. Yeah. Uh, the movies on this list I have seen for the most part numerous times, uh, but uh, it's rare that I revisit a film, and therefore I will often remember that I've seen a film, but remember very about it. And there's so much that like I can close my eyes and just play out scenes of just a film. It's just a great. Well, I mean, it, it's. It's like a psycho remake too. In the beginning, you have the character. It's a real mean spirited in the first act too. Like with the, on top of that, it's like now you found out you have an STD, and then after that, you're like, she does. Oh, she's gonna deal with this? No, she's dead. <laughs> I was like, Jesus. I actually forgot about the STD. Uh, yeah, that's a that's that's a that's a good point. All right, so number two. Uh, a movie that I again have I've loved for years, uh, and with one caveat that I will mention, although it's, it's a spoiler, so I'll leave it undescribed. Uh, the Black Room. Uh, Linnea Quigley's in that for a small one, right? That's a really rare movie. Never made it off VHS? Correct. I have and seen that. It is... Like, I, I, I can't really well articulate why I like the film so much, but it, uh, it spoke to me. Like, something about the mood, uh, kind of in a Halloween vein like it presents all of these things and then none of them really make sense or you know you're kind of waiting for an explanation and you get explanations but they're not really good explanations but it doesn't matter because the film is so effective and uh you in and I, I, I have you seen it yeah i have seen it i remember it being like a 
almost surreal. And there's a, like a really amazing tracking shot in that. Even on VHS, you could tell it was a good tracking shot. I remember like it doesn't it go through the house and there's a lot of candles lit and shit. I remember that well, scene that, in my yeah, head. That's, that's the black room. That uh, yeah, the, yeah, and. It, the general conceit of it where this guy is like just taking his anonymous sex partners yeah. to what it what essentially feels like a dungeon and where there's nothing but like blackness and candles and then just leaving them there for them to be killed is uh it, it, it's absurd it has no there, there's very little logic to an idea like that but it it just it works so well for me and it's also got that idea that the person you love has a secret life and they're fucking sick and they must follow through with this thing i think i feel like somebody else said this but this the plot in general and like bringing someone to a strange room reminds me of hellraiser without the love met configuration in it like just you know what i mean it feels like that just that uh, um yeah like i said it's out, it's unfortunate because that movie literally looks like dog shit. Like the quality on everything. Like I've never seen a good quality print of that movie ever. And rumor has it that it was made for like forty thousand dollars. Who's the actor in that? There's a there's a actor who's like a character actor. Guy or is it Lance Hendrickson in that or somebody somebody like that? I don't think so. You you mean the guy who plays the husband? Somebody, there's a major like actor, like a character actor in it. Maybe it's not even a big role. Christopher McDonald. There he is. Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's in a lot of shit. So, all right. Uh, we are on to number one, and I hope you got number one, because I know we've talked about it. It better be the one I'm thinking of. All right. Uh, what, what, what do you what do you want what do you want to lay your odds at that you got it? I'd say seventy five percent. Okay. We'll see. Scratch my eye first. Dramatic effect. Hmm. I said dramatic effect. No exhaustion. Uh, all right, number one, and this is not only my favorite slasher, I think it's one of the greatest American films of the last 60 years. Uh, Cruising by What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. There's just stuff going down. I don't think I can, uh, I can deal with it. What he experiences. What he discovers will change his life forever. Al Pacino. Cruising. Oh man, I messed up. I picked slasher. I'm picking like garbage movies that you mentioned that we like. So, and cruising was on my uh, Giallo list for you. Your American Giallo list was who was my number one because I was thinking about it. I had that dressed to kill. I even put body double. I would have got your American Giallo list. I think. Possibly. 
I, I, I was thinking killing hours, scissors. I just was thinking of random shit in my head. Uh, well, cruising, uh, which I, I know you, you uh, are, are a fan of as well. I hope you're a fan of I it. I think most people are a fan of it that actually have seen it. Still very divisive, but uh, cruising to me is one of the great pieces of filmmaking, as I said, to come out of the United States, I think, in the last 50, 60 years. Like, if you really dissect that film, every single, and, and this is what any great film should be, but a lot of them just don't meet the standard. Every shot, every cut, the use of sound, uh, everything about it, the, the technical aspects are so perfectly and meticulously achieved that it it's the film that I've probably seen more than any other film, period. And I can't not love it every time I, I watch it. Like it, it's, it's like eating a favorite meal over and over and over and that you, that you like never retire, that you're gonna eat you know, every day. It's, it's probably the only film that I could actually teach a multi-day class in, like dissecting it scene by scene. And there are so many things that make it great, but I think that if I were to choose one element that truly sets it apart for me, it's that it demands, pretty literally, like it demands that you watch it multiple times. Like it's structured in such a way that nothing really makes sense the first time. And the second time you might pick up on things you missed the first time that kind of makes certain other things make more sense. But it's a big open-ended mystery. There's such a, like there's plentiful different interpretations of who does what, who kills who, uh, who's the real killer, like, you know, for, for anyone watching this who has seen cruising, uh, I, I have a cruising quiz, which is uh, things to think about uh, from the film uh, and the questions, the open-ended questions that can be answered. Uh, so I'll, I'll give one such question, and it is when the killer, and I say the killer, says, you made me do that, who is you and who is me? You're talking about the guy at the very end. I'm talking about the killer. Uh -huh. Well, there is a theory about that movie that I could think that the killing passes through people, almost like it's contagious. If that makes sense, you know what I'm saying? Like, sure. um, also, it, it follows your theme that you like, where there's a question mark of a supernatural possibility. And I know somebody would say that's insane, but because if anybody pays attention, the killer who kills the person in the beginning gets killed next. And I could see the only thing that would really truly upset anybody paying attention to the movie, which the people that picketed that movie never paid attention to it is the idea that somehow being a homosexual would carry some sort of violent tendency to commit murder because it happens multiple times. And I think there's multiple killers. And I think that there is some idea, the possibility of self-destructive nature within the characters themselves. So, Here's my answer, my big answer to my own question of uh, when, the, when the killer says, you made me do that, who is you and who is me? You is the son, me is the father. 
Well, you mean because he has the 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 dad problems that it's all stemmed in there, right? Yes. So, well, sort of. That's that's one element of it. But if you look at the line of dialogue, you made me do that. Who is being who is speaking that line? And this is another question: uh, Who is speaking the line? Who's and who is being spoken to? Well, all of the killers, and there are multiple actors playing the killer, but there's only one killer that we see at least. And every actor who plays the killer, every character who is inhabited by the killer, says, "You made me do that," but. That character doesn't say you made me do that. The person who actually says you made me do that is the father who we see visualized as Stuart Richard's father, the final possible killer. But because we know that Stuart Richard's father, we subsequently know that Stuart Richard's father is dead. He couldn't have possibly met his father on the park bench. Yeah. Met the killer. That's who, the, and, and so when the killer says, you made me do that, it's not, the, it's, it's not the person who is inhabited by the killer speaking to the victim, as I think a lot of people want to interpret it as. It's the father speaking to the son. So the irony of the people who picketed the film making claims like homosexuality or sexual deviance results in murderous tendencies or something like that, is they're completely missing at least as I, as I see it. And I think that the film itself clearly presents it as kind of the opposite. The villain of the film is the, the disapproving, unloving, hateful parents. So the idea is the killer, uh, the one killer, the father, the stand-in for the father is possessing metaphorically the son and taking possession in taking possession of the son is killing. So when the killer says, you made me do that, it's the spirit of the father talking to the son saying, you, the son have made me, the father kill through you because it's, it's what the father wants. The father is, is, is hateful. The father is, is the one who wants to, uh, who, I, I should, I should let me rephrase it. The father is, is, is the one who really wishes to kill because of his own hate, because of his own prejudices. And the son is the vessel. The son is the disappointment. The son is who the father doesn't approve of or who the father resents. And therefore it's the father who is the killer it's not the son the son is the victim well you could say the same somewhat the same thing about knife plus heart the killer in that movie is only you know violence put on the him creates violence well that's a theme in a lot of well one of my favorites like that this this yours is a little bit more complicated but bird with the crystal plumage the reveal of why the killer kills is probably my favorite of the dario movies just the motivation alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's genius. And it's just a fun reveal, too. I mean, most movies don't go to the lengths to show a reveal like that. I don't know how. Like, when you go to sit down to think or try to write something, you're like that. You're like, how would I get there? That doesn't make any fucking sense. But somehow, he made it make sense, and it works. Yeah, and, and, and you know, 
sort of going back to cruising with that in mind, like that's again, one of the things that makes the film work so well for me. Like there's so much thought put into every single element. And a lot of that also pays off in mystery. And it's a mystery that's never solved. It's a mystery of ideas. It's a mystery of interpretation and perspective. So like when Stuart's in the hospital at the end and, he, and he's being asked, why did, why did you kill anyone? Why did, why did you kill people? And he says, I never killed anyone. He's not lying. He's not, because if, if, if my logic is correct, he didn't. If he, was, if he was possessed at all, he was possessed by the father. The father is the killer. And you were telling me you have the, the, the Possession trilogy by William Freakin, of course, The Exorcist, and Jade is the other one, or is it Rampage? Rampage. Okay. Oh, I haven't yeah. seen Rampage in a long time. Rampage, the original cut, is great. The recut is not so great. How long is the original cut? I know I have a couple cuts. Some odd minutes. If you... All right, the, the, the shitty one is the 80-some-odd-minute cut. I think so, one's, all right, it's like 82 minutes, I think, is the short version. That's the shitty one. That's the recut. You want the longer cut? You want the longer cut. 95 sure. minutes. I have a VHS, actually. Something like that. It might be like 90, but it's definitely like at least a good 7 to 10 minutes longer than the recut. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I should explain my, my trilogy concept. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are... It is my theory that The Exorcist, Cruising, and Rampage, at least in the original cut, make an unofficial trilogy of three films wherein Friedkin was looking to explore the idea of guilt and complicity in acts of violence, or if you want to go on a more spiritual or, meta or metaphorical level, evil acts, when the the person, the physical human committing these acts is not themselves via a form of possession. So in The Exorcist, we see this on a purely supernatural level. Reagan is possessed. Her body is being used as a literal tool by the devil or by a demon. And therefore, she, the film is very clear. There's no ambiguity in The Exorcist that she is not responsible for the evil things that her body does. And then in, uh, and by the way, the, the, the trilogy becomes more ambiguous as it goes on in terms of asserting responsibility and, and guilt and complicity. So in Cruising, we have it on a purely metaphorical level. And this goes along again with my whole idea of the, the spirit of the father, spirit, not so literally like, not like a ghost, but like, spirit, the, 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 the ideas that have been instilled by the father, the, the, the possession of the father at uh, an intellectual level is what causes the son to kill. A psychological so, possession, right? Yeah. yeah. So in, in cruising, we are presented with the idea of the killer, the father, is possessing all of these sons and causing them to kill. Can we hold the son responsible for basically a learned behavior? Like whatever, you know, if you, if you want to take the, the, the multiple killers in cruising, literally, we can still apply the father possessions. It's the idea of, you, you know, you're, you're taught certain ways of thinking, ways of living, ways of 
of treating others, prejudices, bigotry, all of these things are learned behaviors. So if a person has had these things so heavily instilled in them, can they truly be held responsible for violence, for evil acts that they do as a result of these things? They didn't, they weren't born with these beliefs, but it's as if they were because this is so cruising is taking it on a psychological or, uh, or on, a, on, a, on an intellectual uh, approach where we're supposed to ask, are these sons who are acting out the will of their fathers truly doing so because they want to, because they naturally would have done these things or should they be granted sympathy and, 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 and compassion and, maybe just like a free pass because all of their badness is, has been forced upon them to the point that they can't separate it out. Uh, and then in Rampage, he takes the literal approach. It's about mental, mental illness. It's about a serial killer who is schizophrenic and when he is not medicated, so his true self, or sort of led to believe, is his medicated self. Like when he's on antipsychotics, uh, he is not violent. That is his true nature. But when he's not medicated, he goes crazy and he murders people. So there we're asked the question, because the film is about, uh, it's based on the, back, the vampire Sacramento, and it's asking the question of, does this guy deserve the death penalty? Now, if we, if we accept that, he only commits violent acts when he is not himself. Can his sane self be held accountable for his insane self? So that's the trilogy. Well, the thing about Richard Chase is, uh, uh, if you look at the real case, I'm not, I don't have much sympathy for serial killers. The only ones that you can even garner some sympathy for are the ones with the mental illness, like Herbert Mullen, Richard Chase, Maybe Ed Gein that you look at. He's not a serial killer, but you know what I mean? That you literally are like, these guys are so off that like they're just, they're schizophrenics usually, that kind of stuff. I mean, Richard Chase was crazier in real life than he was portrayed in Rampage. You know what I mean? They, they had a deviance about him in Rampage. I remember the prison escape seemed more like it was, I don't know which cut I watched. Like I said, I watched the VHS cut. Uh, I don't check the runtime because the, the, the scene where he escapes from the van yeah, is yeah. certainly in both versions. And the change that he made in 1992 recut completely changes the context of that scene. Basically, apparently his ideas on the death penalty had changed. So he decided to recut the film to suit his new ideas in the death penalty. But I think, you know, much like Cruising, Rampage is one of my favorite freaking films in the original cut. Yeah. Because it asks the viewer to consider questions and it doesn't give a straight answer. It says, you know, there's possibilities. There's, there's more, everything is nuanced. There isn't like a, a black and white, right and wrong. There are multiple perspectives that can be equally valid simultaneously. And in the 92 cut, he clearly had a perspective and he wanted to make sure the audience understood it. So the ambiguity is kind of lost in that version. So well, that's would, always sloppy when they do that. It's just like, don't, if you got to hit him over the head with it, is it even worth talking to him? 
but he made a very important change. It's a small change, but a very important change in the Batmanscape scene that completely changes the perspective. Mm. So like, it doesn't feel like mental illness. It feels like violent more like, you know what I mean? Purposely premeditated. Yeah. Well, figure out which version you watched. Uh, yeah. that's, uh, well, it wouldn't help because I watched it probably when I was 13 years old. I bought the VHS tape and watched it because I liked the serial killer movies. Well, it's, it's worth a rewatch, but make I, sure you watch the long version. I remember that much, though. That's pretty impressive. I don't it made, it made an impression on me. I remember Michael Bean and Art LaFleur and yeah. Um, going back to cruising, though, not just only on the, the ideas in cruising, it also has probably one of the best cast you could have in that kind of movie. The side characters are all amazing. From um, Al Bundy, fucking Ed O'Neill, Powers Booth, Paul Servino, Karen Allen. And Karen Allen was a great way to, to put her in that because she is like the only sweet thing in the entire fucking movie. And like you, you see her next to Al Pacino kind of losing his mind and you you worry for I, I I worry for you know what I mean yeah and one thing I will I will note uh, again for uh, my father possession thing we get a direct connection so I, I guess since I've already given so many spoilers on cruising and it's shameful if anyone watching this has not already seen cruising truly is to rectify that immediately <laughs> but uh, here are my other theories on cruising. this is related to uh, the mentioned here in Allen. So with the whole thing with the father possession, there are, as we know from the start, two different series of two different murders that have occurred. There's the dismemberment murders where the body parts are being found in the river, and then there's the stab. So the focus in the film is on the stabs. You know, where we literally we see them happen. We see the murders occur, we see who the killers are, and so on. But the film is very critically bookended by one thing. Do you remember? Do you remember how Cruising is bookended? Well, yeah, we have the one character who is killed, and then we also see the character walk back into the bar, and we assume it's Al Pacino. Well, but what are the bookends? Do you remember, like the very fr- the, the very opening and very ending? Isn't it somebody Sorry, walking into the club? No. What is it? Before and after that river shots oh the river body dumping is what you're yeah yeah so the very last the very ending of the film it opens exactly it ends exactly as it opens on the river the implication being there's the river murder still and there's a crucial sequence early on when al pacino was first brought into the captain's office and given his assignment where the captain says you know, we have the stabbing and then we're finding all the body parts in the river. We don't know if it's one killer or multiple killers. Okay. And there's a really nicely uh, utilized quick cut to Pacino's reaction. So my theory is that Pacino is and always has been the river Well, that and, also plays into the freaking on The Exorcist. One of his uh, actors, a bit actor, killed somebody. And it plays into that time we were talking about the three freeway killers that were simultaneously killing people, and we know they caught one, and then they continued, and the cops must have been like, what the fuck is this? And then they found there's three freeway killers in the same area. Yeah. So, with Friedkin, uh, with Pacino, 
uh, we have a really critical scene that, can, that directly connects him with the father possession. And it's a scene where he's in bed with Karen Allen and uh, they think it's either it's right, either right before or right after they're like their aggressive sex scene or it's one of their sex scenes. And Karen Allen mentions your father calls. And right after you know, she says this, and it's this long, slow push in on Pacino's face. And it's a, it's a great moment because you know, there, there's no other, there's no subsequent discussion of fathers or anything like that. But it, it's a brilliant way of connecting the ideas. Like we have the father, the possessing father, and then Pacino, who is supposed to be the novice cop going into this seedy world that he knows nothing about. Well, you learn that he has presumably an estranged relationship or some kind of disquieting relationship with his father by implication, just through this one silent shot of pushing in slowly to his face after he's heard that his father is called. Well, it also brings up the fact that Al Pacino is smart enough to change the MO of the river killer after to take out the person at the very end, if he would like to. Yeah. There's, uh, but again, like that's also part of the whole mystery of the film from how the viewer is able to interpret it. I, I've had discussions with people about cruising where they have completely different interpretations than I do, and they're equally valid, like they're equally textual. I hate that academic term, but uh, my, my, one of my high school English teachers told me a very wonderful piece of advice for critical analysis. If you can prove it in the text, it's valid, even if you're in the minority. If you can cite examples from the text. And... Well, that's the way you have to argue, too. Like when somebody argues with you and they say, no, it's just bad. You say, why is it bad? And then they say, it just sucks. It's like, well, that's not valid enough for me. You need to cite examples of you don't like or stuff. It's not very hard if you watch the movie. A lot of criticism is just lazy. I, I can be lazy, but... You should see some of the movies I watch. I do. See your letterbox every day. <laughs> oh, I turned one off this morning. Not watching that. But uh, let me get over my list, which is absolute garbage. If I would have went with my fucking G American Giallo list instead that I was I thought you were going to go with, I would have gotten more right. I would have gotten one, two. I would have got like three right. Instead, now I have one. And I erased fucking one, which pissed me off. I erased Angel off the list to put Don't Answer the Phone. At All the right, last minute, I erased Angel and put Don't Answer the Phone. Because when you were saying that not really a slasher, I was like, well, Angel. And then I had, but I, I figured that you would put one Friday on your list. So I wrote four Fridays on there just to get one. Because <laughs> I, I can't fail. <laughs> There's only one Friday the 13th movie even worth talking about. Okay. So number 10, I put Friday 2. Friday the 13th, part 2. Number 9, I put Friday. Friday the 13th. Number 8, I put Maniac because you said not really a slasher, but it's kind of a slasher. And I was like, Maniac is kind of mostly a slasher. Number 7, don't answer the phone. I love it. And right when you said that, I was like, oh, that's one that I would think is a slasher. Um, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. 
I like that movie. I know you probably do too. I do. It's got a lot of good stuff about it, and I figured that one was up your alley. And then these two, I don't know why they're stuck in my head. Probably been thinking about them a lot lately. They're not necessarily slashers. They're more exploitation. But kind of in your definition of slashers, I think that they would fit. I put blood games. It started as a Sunday afternoon baseball game. Guys against the girls. Then these rednecks turned out to be real sore losers. That's when things started to get ugly. Okay. And Hunter's Blood, which I love. Get ready for the killing season in Hunter's Blood. One of you sons of bitches wants to die first. I, I liked them both a lot. Yeah, but not necessarily slashers. So um, then Friday 4, because I'm lazy. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. And the burning, because it's a classic slasher. I figured you would have some. You, hate, you don't like the burning? find that movie really obnoxious <laughs> uh and uh i should have put sleepaway camp i figured you probably more of a sleepaway <laughs> camp yeah. You enjoy sleepaway camp yeah and then i put friday five friday the 13th part five a new beginning because i know you like that one that's absolutely the best one Art it's Ed my favorite i don't know if it's the best oh it's definitely it's the best and art edinger would agree with us <laughs> But Art Edinger, I, he, I actually had him on the show too sometimes. Like half the time, I that's the great thing about movies. It's like half the time you agree 100% with someone, then the next time you're like, what? Yeah. Okay. So I did dog shit. I still got one though, so I haven't failed. There you go. I'm terrible at this. I've done horrible at this. Huh? Minus. Like it's like, a, it's like somebody like right when they panic, they just go to what they know. And what yeah. I know is apparently crap. I mean, you know, your, your list makes sense in that it's going into what I think a lot of people are would consider iconic slashers. But I know you don't like those movies, but I just fucking... <laughs> like, I, I have Maniac in my top 15. Yeah. Uh, I might even have Friday the... I probably don't have Friday the 13th Part 5 in my top 15. Uh... No, I don't have it in my top 15, but it is it's it is good. It, it is a really good film. Yeah, I mean, it's very enjoyable to me. Like, Maniac is number 11, so you're, you, almost, you almost have one. You put Don't Answer the Phone over Maniac? Yeah. I'm pissed off about Angel. I should have erased one of those fucking Friday movies. I would have got two. I'm fucking annoyed. I literally uh, scratched off Angel and put Don't Answer the Phone at the last second. All right, so this is a tournament. Do you know the tournament? You've explained it, sort of. Okay, so it's like a March Madness bracket of basketball. Um, basically, there's eight names in this. The first two get pulled out. They go against each other to a fight to the death, whoever you think would win. Then the next one moves on, and then the next two, and then the winner of that goes against that one until we have the final two. And this is themed, right? Huh? This is themed. I had one theme for you, but I went with this one because I basically said characters from Vinegar Syndrome titles, and I picked the dumbest characters I could just to make the most mismatches and that I could think of. All right. And what what am I supposed to be judging? Like, if these two characters existed in the same universe and actually had to fight each other? Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, it's very stupid, and I, I've done this with everybody, and they've all gotten really stupid shit, so. I, I, if I can set it up how they meet, I'll try. I don't think I can with everybody. But okay. let's, let's, let's give it a try and see how bad I feel. Okay. The killer cat from the uninvited, or just uninvited, sorry. A poisonous cat. Now, how is that possible? The poisonous cat. And uh, he's going to go up against, I'm assuming it's a he. I don't fucking know. Okay. This is my favorite. Uh, Donald okay, Pleasant. Hold, hold on. Before you go on, uh, is it the outer cat or the inner cat? It's both. It's oh. both as one. All right. So if you're friendly to it, he might not get the poison cat out. Um, and he's going to go up against Donald Pleasance with access to Wendy's salad bar from Nothing Underneath. No. All right, that that was no, that was not what I was expecting these to end up being, and God, that that would be like a draw. But uh, <laughs> all right, now well, he has full access to the salad bar. God, all right, only because cats are always right. The cat. Okay, he he poisons Donald Pleasance. Uh, that's it. He's out. Poisons the spaghetti. <laughs> okay. And then we have okay. This because why not? Ice cream man from Ice Cream Man. You little turds are gonna have to learn you can't run from the ice cream man. Versus the cat. No, no, he's gotta go up against somebody else. Oh, okay. I thought wait, I thought it was like the winner of one takes on the next. No, no. The the winner of the first fight goes on to the next the the semifinals. Oh, okay. He won his seat. All right. And uh, Ice Cream Man's going against Dolly Dearest. Okay, so two obnoxious, like, wisecracking things. Does it, does, I don't even remember the fucking doll talks. I don't I know what the doll does. It walks around, mostly. Uh, all right, Ice Cream Man, easy. <laughs> Okay, Ice Cream Man. You know what, though? I don't think the Ice Cream Man's going to have any ice cream if he's in Mexico, because he's going to have to fight the doll in Mexico, right? It's all going to melt. True, but yeah. still, I feel like the Ice Cream Man would come up with better ways to kill people. So. Okay, this one's pretty good. Doll is not very cunning. Doll is just sort of lazy and, like, you know, cruise around. I feel like people have, like, tripped and hit their heads in that movie is how they died. I don't fucking remember. I watched it, like, I don't remember, like, probably last year. Oh, oh this is a good people. one. Actually, so was Ice Cream Man. They're both horror movies like porn people. There you go, my, my favorite theme. There it is. Um, these two I draw together. I'm going to explain what's happening here. So, all right. Jackson from On Mass Part 25 is walking around the grocery store. He's looking for a beautiful bottle of wine that him and his blind girlfriend can drink together. And all of a sudden, he asked uh, the cashier or somebody or assistant, he says, can I get some, some wine here? Do you have any delicious grape wine? And all of a sudden, he hears, I hate fucking grapes behind him. And it's Joe from I Psychos in Love. Grapes. The two are going to fight. Joe, because his hatred of grapes surpasses all, and therefore he would not have any Like, he, he would fight to the death and would probably win. All right, he took out Jackson. He can't hack it. 
these two fucking names. Oh, fuck. This fight doesn't even make any sense. Okay, I, I can't break this fight down in a realistic way, but it's the T-Rex from Tammany and the T-Rex versus uh, Christina Lindbergh from Thriller. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm actually gonna break it down uh, in a way that, uh, by the absurd non-logic of this matchup, and within taking elements from both films, why Christina Lindbergh would win, because she has the power of slow motion and can therefore get an edge on the T-Rex and kill it first. I like it. I would have went for Christina Lindbergh anyways. Okay, so now uh, the semifinals. We have the killer cat from Uninvited versus the Ice Cream Man. Okay. Killer cat. Good choice. And then we have Joe from Psychos and Love versus Christina Lindbergh from Thriller. Christina Lindbergh, same thing. She has slow motion. Okay. And the final, Lindbergh from Thriller versus the killer cat from Uninvited. As much as cats are always right, she still wins because she has slow motion. Done. Yeah, that's a great movie. When's that coming out? May? May. May. Going up for pre-order in a week. Well, I I already do the yearly thing, so I think I'm good, right? Yes, you are. Man, I can never remember what what pop what I need to buy. Sorry, what was that? Numbers are already getting it. Awesome. So, what do you got? Thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was actually inter- it was enjoyable. Would you expect anything less? I don't know. <laughs> no. All right. So, what do you got going on besides releasing a bunch of movies? Uh, trying to sleep, which I barely do. Yeah, I can sleep. I just fucking hate waking up now killing me i hate waking up but that's only because i know that i'll have only slept for like two hours dude i almost lost it at work today because i was so tired i just almost like uh, you ever have like one of those freak outs you're like i'm leaving but then you can't leave so you just go back to work no i never do that uh just because i actually one of the few things that i truly enjoy is work and being in work hmm Want to trade jobs? Uh, what do you do again? You're you like don't want to do what I do. Assembly line shit. It's it's factory work. Yeah. Well, anyways, if you got anything to say, anything to plug or advertise. Uh, when is this going up? Probably a long time. Eight weeks from now. Oh, okay. So that long. Okay. Yeah, so I was going to say, uh, if it was going up in like a week, uh, I would plug the flash pre-order. Uh, which is happening a week from today. Presumably, if dates and times are correct, by the time you're all watching this, it'll be pretty close to the uh, halfway to Black Friday sale, which is happening May 27th through the 30th. Uh, we are doing, as always, 50% off SRP on every single Vinegar Syndrome title, every single partner label title, every single Vinegar Syndrome sub-label title, which is BSA, BSU, Picarama, BSP. I'm probably forgetting one by the virtue of how many we have now uh and uh yeah partner labels as well i think i already said that uh two surprise titles um and all the new stuff in stock i know i'm not making it sound very exciting but uh 
the partner labels is huge because you get a you know they get the discount that people get that are the early subscribers basically right basically yeah it's the only time where non-subscribers can get the partner label stuff at the same price as subscribers but that assumes that the titles that you want are still going to be in stock which is all the more reason to become a subscriber because then you can get the half off price uh from day one and not have to worry about stuff running out of stock and uh related to that as always you will have the opportunity to become a subscriber for the remainder of the year which is uh june through december june being partner label month number one uh so you can start getting partner label discounts immediately after the sale ends uh and uh yeah, there's also going to be new shirts, new stuff. Uh, another uh, thing that we've gotten a lot of requests for that we're kind of surprised we didn't do in November as it was thematically appropriate, but we are doing it now. So you can probably uh, guess maybe a bit about what that might be. Uh, and I really do recommend people get the yearly subscription. I know people are like, but I don't want to spend all that money. Literally. You can turn around and sell the ones that you don't want three months later when the slip cover's out of print and make your money back and then some. Yeah, and if you look at it as like you really want to own a lot of pardon label stuff, like you're the you're saving a ton of money on the pardon labels. Like if you get two or three pardon label releases every month, and we have like a dozen pardon labels now. Uh, that alone is saving hundreds and hundreds of dollars over the course of the year. Yeah, I, I do like, sometimes I'll do three to like 10 partner labels a month. Yeah. So, and it's good stuff too. It's a lot of weird, different stuff too. Diff getting like uh, modern foreign movies in there and just unique stuff too. Yeah, I think one of the nice things about the partner labels in general is that they just uh, give... So, and this is maybe a bit too uh, anecdotal or whatever, but, uh, you know, for, I, I grew up in a video store. I managed a video store from when I was a teenager on. And one of the great things about working in and basically living in a video store was it wasn't restricted to one type of film. Like, if I was in the mood to watch a you know french movie from the 40s i could watch that and at the same time i could watch a hollywood movie from the 90s like everything was there there was everything that you know, every genre every period every type of uh movie and what the partner labels have really done which i think is wonderful is it's made the interesting german sites into much more of a video store like you know if you're not into one genre you're going to find another genre. you're going to find stuff that vinegar syndrome as a brand in terms of its own curatorial interests would never release but luckily there's someone else who's going to put the same level of effort into putting it out i've been really enjoying the saturn's core stuff because when i uh first started getting in like when i was like 12 or 13 the online was becoming accessible and I was in the movies. So it, it like, it made me accessible to a lot of those shot on video movies that I never could have got in the video stores typically. So I watched a lot of those movies that they're putting out when I was young. So I have a lot of nostalgia for movies from that time. So like when they put out, um, 
like Savage Harvest and stuff that was really exciting and Shattered Dead. Those are two of my favorites, like from the Asovia era, and that was really cool. And then um, I know a lot of people like Fun City is a great one that I've, I haven't even had a chance to open them, but I like collecting them because every single one of them is an interesting title. Yeah, Jonathan, who runs Fun City, has a really great curatorial sensibility. Like, he only wants to release movies that he truly loves. So every single film that he wants to release is a movie that he, you know, if, if he were talking to you, he would be defending and singing the praises of. And I think that's something that's really important as well in a lot of curatorial decisions are made based around how well will this movie do. And of course, that's a major consideration because you don't want to lose money on putting something out. But that's often a concession that I know, you know, every label has to make. It's like putting out a film that you love versus putting out a film that you might not love as much, but other people love and therefore you're sure it'll do better. And Fun City is really a passion project for Jonathan. He's, he fights to get every single film he releases. Well, Sometimes, like, I've, I've been on that process. He, like, will spend months and months and months trying to get a title. So, um, but when you're releasing movies, does it happen to the fact that sometimes you may not really like a movie, but you respect it enough that you actually like it on a certain extent? You're like, I personally don't like it, but also I, I like what it's done, so I kind of want the title to release at the same time? Um, I don't know. I mean, I... I would be lying if I didn't acknowledge that there's some Vinegar Syndrome titles that uh, I'm not personally fond of, like that I have no desire to watch. That even, you know, after we've restored them, which can often make a movie that didn't really work if you're just looking at like a shitty VHS, I still didn't really care about rewatching it. But I'm going to paraphrase or maybe quote something that Bill Lustig said to me years ago, which is that he wants every Blue Underground release to be a film that is someone's favorite movie. That, like, someone out there is going to watch this movie and be like, this is the best film I've ever seen. This movie speaks to me like no other movie ever has. And I think that that's... I, I can hope the same for... Uh, for most maybe not all but most like Dolly Dearest which we were talking about earlier I, I'm not too into it personally but a lot of people love it and that's great like I, I like that you know we when we put this movie we put it out Dolly Dearest and there was so much enthusiasm for like I, you know, people being so happy that the film had finally had a good release that's cool and, and and that's that's important so it's it's not just about what i personally like or what anyone else who is involved with your syndrome personally likes like that's always a major factor in it like we've never actively sought out a movie that no one in the company likes but we've definitely put out movies where there's sort of a collective shrug and I think that the same is also true of my taste. Like there have been films that you know, I've decided that I want to release them because I love them. Sorry, for the evidence, but 
there have definitely been films that we've released because I really love the film and I basically decided like I don't care if no one else loves this movie or likes this movie or wants to buy this movie it's worth putting it out because it's something that's really special to me well well, well name one of those uh most recent example though it's a Futurama title is that Tagus yeah and that was a film that uh, Steven Thrower actually first recommended to me. Uh, and I got a really lousy VHS room, which is probably how pretty much everyone saw it initially, aside from theatrical, of course. And even though the subtitles sucked and the film was like missing 10 minutes, it just sucked me in. Like, there was something that kept me glued to the screen. Uh, and it then really worked out very fortuitously that a friend in France had managed to figure out the rights. He happened to be friends, not didn't even realize that he was friends with the owner. And we managed to get it. And it was so exciting. Like, you know, like I, I was, I was uh, for months, I was like, anticipating when we were going to finally put this thing out and you know it's, it's been met with kind of a collective shrug but... i haven't even i haven't watched it yet i mean you know I, I have so many so many movies that i i literally would have to get like paralyzed to be able to watch all these movies yeah and i i, I sit around and watch movies all day but it's for work so it doesn't, it doesn't... oh going back to dolly dearest the first time i ever saw that movie was at a trailer park and i can't think of a movie more fit to see in a trailer park than Dolly Dearest. No, there's a story of why you're in a trailer park watching Dolly Dearest. Why? No, no. My uh, Michael Jim used to have, he didn't live in a trailer, like at, at a campground, but he had a trailer that we'd go up to like camp at. And uh, the neighbor, his friend that was up there, he had somebody had a VHS. And it was like one of the only tapes that we would watch. I think it's, you know, they would always watch it. So that's how I saw Dolly Dearest. I think I watched it like 15 years ago and I only watched it because Maria Lise, who directed it, had made sex films. Yeah. And I prefer her sex films. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, Dolly Dearest isn't horrible, but it's not. It, it's kind of just like, that was okay. I've yeah, seen yeah. a lot worse. That was okay. You know? But yeah. if you want to say bye to anybody or just say what's up, get out of here, that'd be cool. Whatever. You got any good buys? Uh, well, yeah. Thanks for uh, inviting me on to do this. As I said, it, it proved to be an unexpectedly enjoyable experience. Thanks. I'm, I'm glad you did it, man. It was The yeah. cruising stuff was great. Yeah. Well, as I said, I can, I can teach a class on it. I think you could. I never, I never thought about the father stuff. I was thinking more of a, a possession through contact kind of deal. In a way that it is. It's, well, uh, I mean, you kill, and then, you know what I mean. Like, if you kill, then you're killed for some. It's a strange thing like that. That's kind of. But he he always blurred the lines so you never knew, which was smart because you never ever really know what the fuck happened, the details and murders and stuff. So, do you have any final words? No, I mean, I, I'm glad you're doing it, and then maybe we can come back and do another one, but I might have to change some of the games because I am just not doing good at this, and I don't like losing. Fair enough.
see ya.